Welcome everyone to the Actor Zilla podcast. I am so thrilled to have on Brian Curtis. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought I have this. I bought this little like stupid sound machine just because I wanted to have a little fun, you know, like I want to have production. I, it's what we all work for in this industry is applause, right? So <laughs> production value is that what you said? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, well, I'm thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much um, for everyone uh, that, you know, needs to be familiar with Brian. He's the associate artistic director of the Walnut Street Theater. But he also does so much else. Uh, he he works in casting, directing, programming, literary management, um, and we're going to get into all that. So I would actually love to hear your. I'm interviewing so many multi hyphenates. Everyone does so much, and it's it's really yeah. impressive. Um, but I'd love to hear your journey through kind of those different roles that you found yourself in. Sure. Um, well, I'm a Pennsylvania boy, so I was born and raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and that's why I went to Temple University. Um, so part of my sort of education journey, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, was going to Temple. That's kind of what brought me to Philly. Um, so I graduated from Temple, and uh, at that point in my life, I was a performer as well. Um, so I had, you know, played Muddle the Tailor and Fiddler on the Roof more times than I can count, and uh you know, did some non-union touring and worked at some of the Lord theaters in Philadelphia, um, which is great because it's such a unique city and that you can actually earn a living here as an artist. Um, but uh, there came a point where I quite, quite wasn't sure if it was right for me in terms of how much I was able to have control over my future. Um, and Bernard Havard, who's the producing artistic director at the Walnut, who is been there since the founding of the nonprofit company in 83, um, asked me if I was interested in sort of an artistic apprenticeship. Um, for anybody who's not familiar with sort of these apprentices that happen a lot of the major regional theaters in our country, uh, it's sort of a season-long, year-long apprenticeship program that's fully paid, um, and you kind of work in one focused area of a you know major regional theater for a season. And initially I was like, oh, he's just looking to fill a spot. I don't really think that he wants me per se, but um, we talked a lot about kind of big picture stuff and putting together, you know, uh, productions and kind of my taste in working with artists. And he sort of encouraged me and said, like, I think that you have a really strong eye for, you know, the bigger picture of how this all gets put together and not just what you've been doing here on our stage because I had performed and understudied in some shows there. So I was like, all right, you know, whatever, I'll like try it for a year. And he was like, try it for a year, see how you think it uh, it goes. And um, I worked uh, under him and for the uh, woman who was working in the artistic department and the literary manager at that time, which was like 2007. Um, and I did it for a year and that's all I needed. I was like, yep, I want to be a producer. I want to sit on the other side of the table. I much would rather be a part of connecting artists and uh, and putting this all together uh, than being in it. So it really sparked, that was the catalyst for kind of going into administration. Um, yeah, so after that apprenticeship, I moved right to New York. I worked for Paradigm, a talent and literary agency to kind of learn about the business of all this stuff. Um, I only did it for a year because I really hated working for a talent agency. I didn't want my income to be determined on the hustle of someone else. It was out of my control. Um, but I learned so much about business, TV, film, contracts, that kind of stuff. Um, after a year, I went to Live Nation and worked in, um, you know, large corporate events where they were looking for people that had theatrical experience, production experience to take like creative staging concepts and communicate that to like non-creative people. So I was working with Walmart and T-Mobile and State Farm and uh, I call it corporate theater. You know, we were doing massive shows with like Justin Timberlake and, you know, Don Henley and Mariah Carey, which was crazy to, to be able to do that, you know, in my late twenties. Um, and then in 2012, Bernard Havard called me and was like, you know, we'd like to have an in-house casting director here that can do both New York and Philadelphia. Do you want to come back to Philly? Um, and serendipitously, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, 
got a full ride to Villanova Law School the same week Bernard called me. So I was like, this is, we have to move to Philadelphia. So came back to the Walnut, did about seven years. Uh, then I went to Gretna Theater, which is a small equity summer stock out in central PA. Uh, ran that as the executive director for about four years. And then COVID happened. And then Bernard was like, do you want to be an associate artistic director and come back again? Um, and I said, heck yeah. So here I am. And uh, it's been definitely very unplanned. And uh, I've been so grateful for some of the crazy opportunities that have been presented to me. And uh, I love working with artists and meeting people like you, James, and getting to bring you into the fold on new work like what we did with Elvis. And it's uh, it's what gets me up in the morning. Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing all that. That was That's amazing. It's always fascinating to hear people um, who've gone through different roles and, and how they think about it. And um, I am really curious about, okay, so for the naive like me that might be listening, I'm kind of curious what an associate artistic director, like what are the roles and what are the, what are the things you think about on a daily basis? It's so different every day because depending on where we are in the process of season planning or a specific production, you know, I serve whatever the needs of the institution are. So one morning I'm coming in and I'm reading a brand new script of an Agatha Christie novel that's been adapted to a, a stage play to see if it's even something that's appropriate for our audiences. Right. And then the next day I get a phone call from, you know, we just had two people get Broadway shows and they're not able to do beautiful, uh, which is our next main stage show anymore. So I stop everything and I have to replace those artists. Right. And I'm scheduling our open call for the next season. And I have to determine based on the new LORT negotiations with the non-pro and equity ratio, how big those cast sizes are and how many equity versus non-equity contracts I can use. So every day, depending on what the Walnut needs artistically, I'm like, all right, take care of that, take care of that, take care of that, take care of that. You're you're the, you're like the fixer. You fix everything that's, that's yeah. going on, right? I'm kind of curious. Like, is it like the vice being the vice president of like the theater? I mean, I know that's not appropriate, yeah, but it's a good analogy because like the way Bernard has so smartly set up the Walnut is it's like he has like his cabinet, and so we have a senior staff meeting every week where he sits in his chair. And he gets an update on the status of the development and fundraising. He gets an update on the status of our marketing and advertising. He gets management in front of house and then artistic. So it sort of is like being a VP of a department at a large corporation. Um, and the wallet's pretty big. So I can understand why not every theater might have the resources or the capabilities to recreate that. But it right. works here. Right. Um, and, and yeah, just, uh, Brian mentioned it, but, uh, we obviously met, uh, last year. Um, I had the profound uh, privilege and pleasure to work there for Elvis, um, a musical revolution, which it might be under a different name now. I'm not sure. Heartbreak. Yeah. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot stuff of stuff on with that yeah. title and Elvis is a state. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So I think it's heartbreak hotel possibly, but you know, uh, that's, that's, that's beyond uh, beyond my pay grade, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So Brian was uh, I I remember I think I called like when I first got the offer or something, and you picked up, and I was like, he seems too important to be answering this phone. <laughs> I was like, I just because like it, I don't know. I you don't usually have the direct phone line to like anyone that's that high up in a theater, I guess. And and I've always found that you were very approachable and friendly. Um, yeah. Thanks. That's, that's been a huge, uh, kind of philosophy of mine. And it's something I learned from Bernard here, um, is just fostering relationships with artists to such a high degree. Um, a great example that you just mentioned is like, you're an actor being able to have access and a relationship with the folks who work in the organization. That's no different than if you had written a play, James, and we're one of the few regional theaters that we take unsolicited script submissions and we respond wow. to every one. So you can write a play or a musical that you think is great for us, send it to us and you'll actually get a response from somebody, a human, Yeah, uh, which is so rare. But um, yeah, we, we, uh, the philosophy at the Walnut is we serve two groups of people. We serve our audience and we serve the artists and we cannot do what we do without both. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I, I spend my time and I put value in the relationships that we have with our artists. What do you, what do you think is, are, are the right types? Like you mentioned, you know, if you, if you write a show and you, you want it to be the right type of show for Walnut Street, what does that look like? Do you think, is there a type of that's mission a, or a, or an artistic statement that you guys stand by or just whatever is good work or. That's a great question. We do have a mission statement. Um, it is pretty broad. I will say because of the size of our venue, you know, we seat 1100 and we operate with seven labor unions, which is one of the highest in the country, aside from Broadway, aside from a production contract. So just to turn the lights on in this building, the operating costs are astronomical. Um, because of that, you know, we've always led with a populist programming. So anything that has an appeal to a very wide, broad-based audience, you know, shows that have commercial appeal, um, like your Les Mis, like your Elf, like your Oscar Wilde play, um, in order to sustain, you know, our long runs can be six to eight weeks long, eight shows a week for multiple weeks. In order to even you know, just break even, we really have to focus on a broad appealing product. Anytime the wallet has diverted from that, it has put our finances in jeopardy. Wow. Okay. I'm curious because there is another space in the theater, right? There's another performing space. Yeah. Yeah, we have a black box studio, which is on our third floor. Um, we have not reopened that post COVID, right. but uh, for those of you who are interested in the other kinds of work that we program here, the third floor is a black box theater. It's a really small studio. It's only like 80 seats. Um, and that's the space where we focus on new work. That's where we'll develop new pieces. That's where we'll really focus our time and energy on finding things that we can get our hands dirty, quote unquote. Um, so when we're reading scripts uh, and we're deciding to develop something that's brand new, world premiere, you know, find a local playwright that's got a new uh, voice or perspective on something. That's where we'll kind of uh, focus our attention on the the more um, exciting or envelope pushing artistic work. You said it will be open, or is there a thought that it will reopen? Yeah. So right now we've got kind of two avenues with which we can go. The first avenue is keep it closed and keep our eyes on this new theater that our plan is to open next door, which is a four hundred seat theater. That kind of got paused by COVID. Oh, wow. um, okay. And the second would be to uh, build back up the main stage so greatly to what it used to be that it can help cover the cost of the studio. Because 80 seats, that's financially <laughs> so tough to produce anything in. And right. you know, pre-COVID, uh, when the theater was so financially stable and strong, we were able to subsidize the cost of producing in the studio with the success of the main stage. Right. Right. Um, and just for anyone that is not aware, like I, I wasn't aware before I worked there, but the Walnut street theater is like so historic. I mean, there, there, there's, there's an amazing history to the Walnut street theater. Um, and I would love to just kind of riff and, and just, just get people up to speed on like that. It's, that it's the oldest English language theater in the world. Is that like continuing? Yeah. Is that what I read or? It's, it's sort of a long way. We, we shorten it by just saying America's oldest theater. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, the longest continuously operating theater in the English speaking world. So I, I did happen to say that to a British man, by the way. And he was like, Hmm, what about <laughs> our theaters? I don't know, <laughs> but maybe it wasn't continuous there. I, I don't know. So, the theater has been producing theater since 1808. And right. so that is around the time when many theaters in England were being created or developing, opening, closing, or shuttering. But we've been here at the corner of Ninth and Walnut since 1808, still wow. producing theater. Not right. like, oh, it turned into a post office or, oh, it oh. then turned into a shopping mall. This yeah, has right. been building where theater happens for 215 years wow. and uh you're so right man like when you walk through the walnut it's a living breathing museum you're on the same stage that marlon brando was on when they were working on streetcar before it ever went to new york right. and you know the, there's brick walls on the side of the theater that are supported by steel beams from the 1800s when it was like an equestrian circus it's crazy <laughs> and uh yeah it, it was amazing just to go to work every day so i 
I can't imagine uh, working there full time. Um, but I, I, I like to switch a little bit and talk about Curtis Creative. Is that um, oh, yeah. so? Can you tell me a bit about how that interplays with what your role you know, at the theater and, and is that that's a separate venture? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, separate it's my freelancing business um you know as i have been doing this for so long a lot of my friends former colleagues co-workers from under other industries you know the longer that i've been in this business the more i'll get phone calls from you know i went to school with a guy named joe and he now owns a video production company in northern new jersey and he'll be like brian i need like a photographer to do stills of food product or Hey, Brian, we're looking for models to do these watches for hands. And I uh, continued to get phone calls from smaller production companies, video agencies, um, you know, photographers, uh, independent filmmakers, some of the university students who are doing student films, um, always looking for artists. And so as that continued to happen more and more, I was like, I got to find a way to monetize this. If everyone's right. calling me because they're looking for artists maybe that's how I make a living. Um, right. So it's been, uh, it's now become its own business, which is really incredible. And uh, yeah, so I pick up freelance projects on the side, a lot of non-union commercial work, especially here in Philly. Uh, we're so close to Delaware that there's a lot of corporations right across the river and they're looking for voiceovers. They're doing trade show videos. They're doing medical training and need standardized patients. So I've kind of, elbowed my way into people's minds to say, when you're looking for actors, when you're looking for singers, you need a girl who can kick really high. Just call me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it kind of it expands on your casting. Is it mostly casting you would say? Cause it says casting and production. Um, yeah, I would say it's like 50% casting 50% like production. So a lot of events, a lot of live events where they need script writing or, you know, consulting on a stage design for a trade show booth. So I'd say it's, half events, half, uh, casting. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned that you were, you were an actor as well. Um, before yeah. did you ever, so did you move to New York to pursue it or, um, no, I was still in Philly at that time. And the great part about Philly, I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid and trying to plug it all the time, but if you live here, it's way more affordable than New York and you can just get a bus for like 25 bucks go to New York for your appointments and then come back. Yeah. Um, it's a great place to live and earn a living and you can survive here and still audition. So I had not moved to New York to be an actor. I was still auditioning while I was here in Philly. What, what is your, um, if you had, you know, advice to give for people that are starting out in this industry, maybe they just graduated and they're moving to New York or Philly um, to pursue acting. What, what would your advice be? I'm asked that question a lot, like what makes a good actor? What makes a good audition? And I always try and align myself with this phrase that a good actor or a good audition is an informed actor or an informed audition. Um, I really do believe that the game is much different today than it was in 2007 when maybe you and I were graduating at the time. Even the way technology has forced its way into our industry, both in a good way and a bad way. If you're not informed on how to do things, how to self-tape, who's in the room, where to find information, all the things that are easily and readily available to you now as an actor because of technology, if you're not taking advantage of that and teaching yourself how to be a video editor so you can edit your self-tapes, you're already behind the ball. So, you know, being the most informed actor that you can be is not just your training of singing, dancing, acting, understanding what a Fresnel light is, understanding how to edit and use sound gear. Um, so I am very grateful, you know, those so many years ago that I was forced to take tech classes and know how to build a damn flat so that now as a producer, I can sound like I know what I'm talking about when I talk to a set designer and lighting designer. So a good actor is an informed actor. That's I love that. Um, that's that's what I that's what I say too. I mean, it's it's basically you need to be informed in all areas and not just the one you know area that yep. you're in. And um, 
I'm curious because obviously, I, I mean, I assume you see a lot of auditions. Um, is there anything that, that you like particularly that stands out uh, or does it depend on the project? Like obviously you do plays and musicals. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I serve the artists. So when I'm auditioning actors, it, I'm, I got to serve the play. So if it's calling for a specific need or a skill set, then does this serve the play? What purpose does this serve is always what I'm asking. And there are plenty of times where an artist comes in front of us and they're just not the right fit for the show, which is totally out of their control. But there are so many times I can tell you where I hold on to somebody for six, nine months because, you know, I may have seen you audition when we were doing Holiday Inn because we were looking for a bass player and you wouldn't have known that I'm like, we have this thing called Elvis come down the pipeline. And I'm using this as an example, just yeah. hypothetically. Um, but you would have no knowledge of all of the other things that come into play in sort of this industry. Or when I get a phone call from the artistic director at media theater, because someone bailed on million dollar quartet. And I'm like, great. I have all these guys from Elvis that I didn't hire. Here you go. You know? So, right. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, so the important tricky. thing is the important thing for an actor then is, is what I say is like showing up. I mean, you just have to show up and do your best work because like you said, there's so much out of your control and that can be, you can see that as a negative or you can see it as a positive too, because like you said, all these guys that didn't get Elvis, maybe you'll, you'll be, if you did a good job, you know, maybe you'll be recommended to another production. Like, yeah. And it's easy for me to say, because I'm not the one who's having to start from zero. I imagine that's what it feels like every time. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for the hustle that artists have. And it's, it's so self-deprecating and self-conscious by nature that just being able to come in the room and say, here's what I have to offer for sale today right. uh, must be incredibly challenging and exhausting. Um, and I really respect those who can do it well because auditioning is a totally separate skill set than acting. I know some really, really talented actors who just cannot come in the room and book a job. But then I know some really good auditioners who suck on stage. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so funny. So, That's so true. Yeah. I was talking with, uh, I don't know if you know, RJ McGee. Um, yeah, I know RJ for a long time. Oh, cool. Yeah. He was, uh, he was my first uh, guest on the show and he kind of mentioned that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's so funny because. Uh, Talk about it like weightlifting a lot where I'm like, look, you've got two biceps you're training your craft so you can be good on stage and you've got to train your auditions at the same time. And if you're only lifting with your right arm, you're going to have this wimpy left bicep. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, they're part of the same body, but they're different muscles for sure. Yeah, like, different. and, um, and what RJ said was kind of interesting was that it was like, he said, well, look at auditioning as like a mini show, like basically a one person show, which you know, kind of brings it more into the realm of performing, I would say. But in my mind, like, and this is, you should, obviously you should be able to perform a, a monologue anywhere, like on the subway platform to anyone, right? You need to have it like so well known and in your body that that's like what you do. Um, but, but I love, I mean, I love being on stage because there's lights and there's costumes and you have three weeks of rehearsal and like you've worked on the character for that long. And, and it's like, and it, auditioning is so the opposite of that. Like, oh, just here's this script. Now, now perform it instantly, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, I always found it kind of odd, but everyone says like, there's no better process yet. So, you know, to, to get people into a show. So yeah, it's, um, it's tough. The whole auditioning world has completely changed, you know, even since COVID with the, insertion of self-taping which is basically the new pre-screening now and i really don't see that going away you know even if you I, I would assume that this is echoed when you talk to anybody else who does what i do if you're ask rachel hoffman at telsey or tara rubin i i think self-tapes are here to stay what do you do you think that's an advantage to an actor or a disadvantage i mean i guess it could be both yeah i guess it could be both i mean the film industry's been doing things on tape for much longer same with commercials it's so much more rare that you'll even get in the room with a producer or a director when you're auditioning for a film or commercial because it's just you're on tape in a room with an assistant and they'll you know they'll send a link to a producer or a brand 
uh, legal team person, especially for commercials, that that's kind of been a bit more commonplace and accepted as part of the game. But with live theater now, um, yeah, it's, it has opened the doors to a lot more people being considered for things. You know, I can, I can find somebody in North Dakota who's equity and fits the stats I'm looking for and kind of work with them uh, on video now instead of just going to Chelsea Studios in New York and seeing who shows up that day. Um, right. So it's certainly offered more opportunities for artists, but then the downside of that is it's taken away that live theater component that's so important. Like I'll I'll never forget how good it felt coming out of COVID and having my first dance call again, where I was like, oh yeah, like this is the best way to find people and to foster a relationship between a choreographer and potential dancers. Like I can't do this on a 10 by 10 box that equity's having me tape out in my studio apartment in Harlem. Like <laughs> I got to be in the room with these people. So you're right. It's both. It's both. But there's something about life theater that I'm like, I need to see you in a room. And every director I've talked to, even Jeff Calhoun, Tony nominated Jeff Calhoun when we were doing Elvis, where I was like, do you want to see self tapes? There's a lot of guys in LA who might be great for this. He was like, no, I need to see these guys in the room. Like I'm not right. going to make a decision to stage this brand new world premiere musical, which might have a future based on some YouTube link. <laughs> Get the guys. <laughs> it's so fascinating too, because when you make these self tapes as a predominantly theater artist, um, it's like, do we, do you calibrate, you know, your performance based on what you might do in the room? Do you calibrate it to more of a film performance? I mean, it's, there's a lot of questions that come up. What is what is your take on that? I always tell people, get the call back. Usually when someone's requesting a self-tape, that may not be the end of it. You know, of course, there's exceptions for everything. I have booked plenty of people from tapes, especially right. backups and uh, special circumstances, of course. But get the call back. You know, make the tape good enough that it'll be able to get you in the room. Um, right. So I always say to people, you know, because it's no different than going to an EPA or a general call like Straw Hats or NETCs, like get the right. call back. That's where you can do the work. Exactly. You, especially, you know, because things are still done in the room eventually. And yeah. this is kind of, it, I, I, I kind of see it as an extra step that's been added, not a step that's been taken away, like you just said, with uh, pre-screening, basically. Um as far as like networking, like you said, when, you know, the, you can kind of see the chemistry between the choreographer and the dancers in the room. Is, is, there a, is there a way that actors and artists can develop relationships? Like what is, the, what is the best way to develop relationships in this industry that's not, you know, going too far? That's a great question. And it's so much easier to do in a smaller market like Philadelphia, Chicago. Um, when you're here in Philadelphia, for example, you can audition for the associate artistic director, the casting director a number of times. They'll get to know your work and your personality and they'll be able to both afford to and have the time to see you in other shows. You know, there's so many Lort regional theaters in Philly that I can go see a show at the Arden, the Wilma, Media, PTC, the Walnut and meet a lot of actors that way. And then when they come in the room, I can advocate better for their work because I've seen them outside of the audition room actually perform that's not as capable in somewhere like New York city where it's just a sheer numbers game. There's zillions of actors. There's a bazillion shows off Broadway, Broadway at festivals. There's a zillion casting directors. I can't say you have the same ability to foster relationships with other industry people in New York. Like you do in a smaller market, like Philadelphia. Do people like reach out to you like postcards, email? I mean, is there a way that people keep in touch? Okay. Yeah, people um, do that all the time, both hard mail, email. Um, I mean, it's not going to get you a job, but it, and it's also not going to not get you a job. But right. um, just be a human being. You know, if you know the person, you can reach out. I say it's all dependent on the relationship. And so there is no one-size-fits-all blanket that you're going to say, well, Brian told me or my teacher at Boco told me as soon as you audition, send the postcard. It's not going to get you the job. Right. But it's not, right. not get you a job. So, you know, if you want to do that and if you're working with uh, creatives, not just casting directors, um, 
through workshops and new work, festivals, classes, social events. Um, keep in touch with them like a human being does. You know, it's it's a lot right. more transparent than you think. Yeah, and um, and like a human being, you know, not just yeah, not having an ulterior motive. Basically, I mean, just just reaching out, and you know, you're in the same industry, and you both. I assume you both love the theater too. And part of the reason I love having people on and, and I thank you by the way for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Um, I I love to get to know people on a more personal level because I think people are, you know, we have, maybe we passed, you know, in passing, we got to know each other a little bit, but um, people are so interesting. And and I, I find the best ways to get to know someone is just talking about sometimes even not the industry at all. Um, yes. you know, so I'm trying to figure out how to work that way into the podcast too. Like, uh, what are your other, <laughs> what are your, what are your other interests? You know, like, are there, do you have any hobbies or like yeah, things outside um, the industry? Well, so I've always lived in the city. Uh, you know, when I moved to Philly to go to temple, you know, I lived in Philadelphia for like 15 years. I lived in New York for a number of years. That's where I met my husband. We moved back to Philly and uh, when I was running Gretna Theater, it's out in the middle of, like, the woods, basically. And I loved the space, and uh, it kind of motivated us to want to get, like, a house in the suburbs. And I was the first person to make fun of all those people who would, like, buy a house in New Jersey and, like, suburban, like, you know, Jersey girls or whatever. Yeah. I was on that train where I was like, oh, my God, like, yeah, whatever. Like, you, you live across the bridge. <laughs> And now I'm one of them. I love it. I love it. I love suburban New Jersey. I've got a house and a yard and I've, I've taken up gardening. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's the newest, uh, part of my life is like learning suburban life after being a city dweller for like 20 years of my life. Right. Did um, you, did you grow up, uh, in the city proper or did you grow up in a small, no, no, small I grew town? up just outside of Lancaster and Manheim Township so it's like two miles from the Fulton if anybody's like a theater person on this podcast uh the Fulton Theater Fulton is theater. a gorgeous theater uh downtown Lancaster um a gem so you are you and, are Pennsylvania uh, through and through you're oh yeah <laughs> I am like a Hershey kiss and a Philly soft pretzel man like <laughs> that's me but I had uh, such uh, a good time yeah like it was uh it was such a good time to to be there for that long and experience Philly. Uh, I fell in love with it for sure. Um, and, uh, what kind of gardening do you do? Isn't there like different types of gardening? Yeah. So we have, uh, we have raised beds, we have food that we grow. Um, cause I think it'd be really cool to be sustainable. You know, we have a totally, um, solar generated home, you know, so all of our energy in our house is through solar power, which is pretty cool. Um, we tried growing our own food, but there's a lot of wildlife. Turkey, foxes, and deer kind of eat everything up. So we're exploring the idea of caging in a little bit. But right. uh, I'm learning about what's animal resistant and the plants. So we have a lot of geraniums and marigolds that the deer do not eat. Uh, so that's like my latest uh, new hobby besides traveling. So my husband and I love to travel. We don't have kids. We've been married for 10 years. So we go on a big trip every year. And we also go on a trip alone every year so like i'll take a week by myself mm -hmm. and go to costa rica and my husband will go to amsterdam or whatever and so we'll vacation together and alone oh i, so I, I like that that's cool yeah um what is the what is like the top three places you've traveled that you that you would love to go back to uh i loved costa rica uh really love amsterdam and um I have I'll I won't answer your question, but I'll change it. Somewhere I have not been that I want to go to is Israel. So I'm Jewish and I've not yet been to Israel. I want to go to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Uh every time I get ready to go, something happens. So I think I just have to go because right. there will always be conflict in the Middle East. Um but uh I never did birthright or any of that. I'm too old for birthright, so I can't go for free. Uh but it's on the top of my list of like places that I have to go before I die. Gotta go to Israel. I think you'll make it. I think you'll make it at some point. <laughs> maybe not now. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe not now. <laughs> um, do you see like um, what is like the future of of the walnut that you, that you would see as far as like 
the future of, of you can take that as like the productions that you see or like just the theater in general where do you see it going well i i'll answer that with two points the first is not having to do with the actual theater and the facility itself for for those of you who don't know who are listening you know the walnut's a nonprofit, so we have a lot more programs than just the shows we're putting on stage uh the educational programs at the Walnut are like one of the largest in the state of Pennsylvania, where we're going into an enormous amount of schools with programming as far as, you know, a four person, you know, bus and truck tour about bullying or nutrition or civil rights, all the way to going into, you know, Title I schools in the school district of Philadelphia that have no arts programming, no theater program at all, and doing like a three-year program with them where we build a theater program and send teachers where they don't have arts teachers into those schools. So I I fantasize about how much more we can kind of extend our roots into the community aside from producing entertainment. So when I think of the nonprofit as a total business, I really get excited. And it's one of the reasons why I went into nonprofit theater as opposed to commercial theater and being a Broadway producer like Ken Davenport, for example. I am very passionate about the commitment that this theater has to the Philadelphia community at large. So what I see in terms of its future is that growing. How much further can we go into Jersey, Delaware, Ohio, that kind of stuff, because since COVID, the need and the demand for arts education has like skyrocketed, and I want to meet that demand. Ohio's a lost cause, so I don't know about that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no arts. <laughs> no arts. No arts in Ohio. Um, but in terms of like the theater, you know, before COVID happened, there really was we were about to break ground on this new facility across the street. You know, we were fundraising up to it, shovels were about to happen, and then it just stopped. And so, you know, when I think about the future of the theater as a theater, I think about all the new kinds of programming that we can bring in with a different space. Um, I think about how we can co-produce with other theaters, like how we've co-produced with the Fulton and Riverside and Vero Beach. And I think about new partnerships where, you know, I'd like to partner with Universal Theatrics or Disney. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a pre-Broadway tryout here at the Walnut Street Theater, like there used to be back in the 60s. I don't know. But the opportunity for new creative artistic programs uh, is also why I came back. That's awesome. Because, yeah, I mean, there's such cachet, too, with the Walnut Street. Like, um, I, you know, I, I've worked at a lot of regional theaters, but I've always heard amazing things about the Walnut Street Theater. Just, um, what was your favorite the... part about working? Oh, man. My favorite part, honestly, the people. Like, the cast... I, I guess I have you to thank for <laughs> for that too. Like the cast was so well, like everyone, everyone involved in that, of course, but like it was, we're still taught. We still have a group chat going and this is like months later. Like we ended, we closed in November and it's February and we still have our group chat going. Like we're, I think we made some really good, I made some really good friends and uh, that was definitely the best part. And of course, like getting to, getting to work with Jeff Calhoun was amazing. Um, He's an he has an amazing eye and is a great director, and just and just experiencing the the walnut for the first time, like I would go back in a heartbeat because everyone talks about how good it was and it was beyond that. And yeah, uh, cool place to work both as an administrator and an artist because everybody in this building is like top of their game. So right. like Siobhan, the director of production, like the women who run the production department, first of all, it's run by a production department of all women, which is badass. Yeah. They're so good. Yeah. The, the costumes are so good. And the resources that we can put into productions here are just like so top notch that so, it's like, yeah, you just love every, everyone who works here and everything about it because everyone wants to be here. They're all compensated. Well, they're treated well. And because of that nature that like kind of Bernard's fostered here for the last 40 years, the productions are gold because of the that. production so value and the production values are insane. They're off the charts. It's like, yeah. it, it feels like a Broadway show. I mean, it felt like we were in a Broadway show just, and not just, and not just the production value, but just the amount of support. Like I had some special uh, things that I had because of my role in the production. And it, I was, I was treated very well and it, it was, it was a joy. Like, 
everyone was just on the same page of wanting to do the best show possible and, and arming people to be able to do that and having the resources to do that. So, um, yeah, that, that was my, what is your favorite part of working there? Like you, it's the people. I mean, it's really the people. It's, uh, it's rare to see, um, in this day and age, I'll say it's rare to see people hold down, uh, positions for long periods of time. You know, I think when we look to some of our parents and grandparents, people used to get a job and they would sit down at a company and stay for 30, 40 years. I feel like that's going away a lot in office culture because the idea of like pensions and all that kind of stuff is not as strong as it was, um, you know, maybe 50 years ago, for example. But people will get a job at the Walnut and they'll hold on to it because it's great. It's one of the best jobs in the city of Philadelphia, maybe on the East Coast regionally, and you're treated well and the resources that you're given are incomparable. And uh, it's just such a great place to be. Um, and so when I come to work, you know, when I was deciding where I would want to go next in my career, I'm like, the qualities of the show is so high. The skill level of my colleagues will be so high. Um, you know, the opportunities to work with other people like Jeff Calhoun is high. I don't know where else I would be getting that, you know, in the States. Um, right. So I'm, I will stay as long as they'll have me. So I love coming to work and seeing, you know, Siobhan and our stage managers and our production team and our education department, which is massive. The ticketing people are great. And, you know, we come to work and we see our friends, which is a really, really great thing to do, you know, especially yeah. when you open up the time section, the art section. And even still, like theaters are closing left and right. And it's a terrifying, unstable thing that has not yet completely gotten out of the woods. And so to be able to have an employer where my checks still cash. Major theaters too, not just like small yeah. theaters, like major theaters. Um, yeah. COVID changed the game for, for everything. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I'm going to take a little left turn, but what are some of your favorite shows that you've seen or that you just have loved for a long time? Like it could be shows you've seen or that you've produced or uh, I'm just curious. That's a great question. Yeah, it's a really good question. Favorite shows that I've ever seen. I try and think back on times where I sit in the audience and I said like, oh my God, or like, how did they do that? Um, which has been fun, but. I mean, besides Elvis, of course, of course. Yeah, besides Elvis, which was cool <laughs> because I was like sitting in a room with a group of people that no one's done this show before. It's yeah. never been done. No one's ever played your role. So it was created for you with what your skills were. Experiences like that are so much fun. Um, yeah. I think one of the most fun, the most fun I've had at work, I think was casting in the Heights at the Walnut where we did maybe the first regional theater production after it closed in New York, we got the first rights to it post Broadway and Lynn and Kiara came down, which was exciting and they were like tweeting the artists during opening night but casting that show i think was one of the most fun times i've had working in the theater i don't know why i think just the nature of the collaborative spirit that we put behind casting that show where i was like look this is i'm not a member of this community yes i lived in washington heights but i want to find uh with my team the most authentic representation we can so we went into Rittenhouse Park and we're talking to break dancers and we're like, would you ever want to be in a musical? <laughs> um, and, you know, the finding uh, authentic drummers that could handle the percussive needs of that show separate from the normal guys that we would hire from the musicians union here. So putting together that show was the most fun I've had uh, at work, working in the theater. But I don't know, man, it, the the most, the best show I've seen. <laughs> or just your favorite yeah. show. Like if you have a, because when I was growing up, I, I had, I think I had the company like soundtrack that I would play over and I was just mesmerized by the music and how the like. Lane Stritch yelling at you, screaming <laughs> at your face. <laughs> when you have a Lane Stritch, when you have a Lane Stritch yelling at you, you know, you're having a good day. That's, that's yeah. how I approach life. <laughs> Oh, it, it depends on my taste. Like sometimes I love just big honking musicals like a ragtime or like Adam's family or something like that. And other times I'll go, I remember seeing bad Jews at roundabout and I was like, Oh my God, like that impacted me. I had such an emotional connection to the piece. 
um, that it just, I don't know. I, can, I don't think I can pick one, but it's no, yeah. anything emotional connection to. Yeah. Yeah. Those shows, um, one of them for me is spam a lot because uh, I had the, the pleasure to do that, like the national tour a while ago. And uh, I grew up doing, I grew up like talking or like, you know, loving Monty Python too. And uh, yeah. I got, I was able to like meet Eric Idle and stuff like that. And so I kind of relate when you're talking about Lin-Manuel and, and meeting kind of the, the people involved and it just makes it so much more special. And it's, and that's, that's kind of what I love about theater too, is just, it's such a human to human level because it's like, um, actually, you know, you can meet the playwright sometimes, or maybe you're in the room with the playwright and it's not that other mediums don't do this too, but I just love that how collaborative of an art form it is and how, I don't know, I don't know how to put it. Um, no, it's human connection because I talk about this a lot because I have a lot of friends who don't work in the theater. Um, and they're like, well, theater people are so close and they're huggy and kissy and blah, blah. And I try to explain to them the nature of how we exist with each other. Where what other industry are you living with? your coworkers sometimes <laughs> traveling with your coworkers. I'm like, you're in, we, we become ingrained in each other's lives while we create theater. That to me, that's why theater people quote unquote are like that. You know, it's, I don't know if it's like that at a marketing agency or a law firm, but I'm like, you're getting on an airplane, maybe flying to Sacramento and living in an apartment with other actors who you go to work with and then you eat dinner with and then you go home with and you ingrain each other in your lives. So it's a little right. bit more like intimate than just like a coffee table talk or like water cooler talk or I'm like, you know, it's you are, what if you have a love interest in the show? Like you're pretending to be married for nine weeks. Like it's, you're ingrained in each other's lives. Yeah. And, and obviously the nature of what we do, like, uh, you know, um, Jenna and Lucas, like, yeah, like, you know, it depends on the show. Like, yeah, you could be a couple of the show or you could be just, it's very intimate what we do. I mean, it's drama, you know, on the stage is, it's very personal and it's, and, um, it kind of the, I guess maybe the type of person that would go into what we do, like, is just more, open to that i guess that's what i've found is that people are more open to experiences and they're more open to getting to know people um and that's what i love like we got really we got our cast got really close we went out like basically every night and just because we want we enjoyed each other's company and those are the best sort of contracts i found um what it's is it like, like <laughs> yeah ex then that's true too um what is it like being, I mean, cause you know, the other side too, you know, being an actor and you know, the other side, I mean, what, what's, uh, what was, what's your experience, I guess, being on either side of the, the table? Uh, I like, found that having been a performer has helped me be a better artistic person. So I don't know if I would be as good as my job as I think I am had I not been a performer. So an example of this is when we're, let's say we're doing a dance call with, you know, Richard Stafford for an American in Paris. If I didn't know how to do a glissade assemblée torgette, I think I would have a hard time finding him the people he needs for this production. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think just having been in it and through it for a period of time informs my ability to communicate concepts between collaborators and understand or be empathetic towards the dancer, but then also towards the director and facilitate the relationship. I feel like a matchmaker or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, your whole, I mean, bringing artists together, right? That's what it says. Your, That's your mission mantra, is. Man. That's my mantra. I love that. Everything um, I do, everything I do, man. Everything you do is about that. Um, where do you see your own self going? I mean, I know this sounds like a job interview now, but like five, ten years, where do you see yourself? 
Uh, well, I'd, I'll, I'll stay at the Wonnet as long as I can. I mean, I believe in this place. I believe in its future. Um, I hope there's a place for me in its future. And uh, the things that this place has the potential to do get me up in the morning. And so I, any place that has that effect on me, I will go. You know, that's why I went to Gretna, because I was like, I can impact real change at a place like this. That's why I came back here. So uh, I hope I'll still be here. And I hope I'll be creating the next uh, show that has not been worked on before, like Elvis. You know, the opportunity to work on something brand new um, is really appetizing. So I hope I'll still be here and I hope I'll be creating something new. Is it what is the breakdown of like new shows to established shows that you guys produce? Well, that's a good question. I don't really ever think that there's like a set ratio we follow, but I will say our programming on the main stage of the Walnut is uh, sort of formulaic. So we do a season of five plays and musicals every year on the main stage, and we always start this is how we program our seasons. We start with the holiday show, which is probably has the largest appeal family-based audience and is probably our largest revenue generator of the season. So for this season, that was beauty and the beast for us. Once we lock down the holiday show, which I call the keystone Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> we will build the season around that. So we have found success in the following template. We'll open with uh, a lesser known musical, uh, the holiday show, which is, a family appeal. You know, we find our large subscriber base will bring their grandkids and their families to that show. Um, then we always do a drama, a comedy, and then a summer blockbuster. Wow. So that's kind of the template that has worked here for the last four decades. And it's been what's been able to build, you know, one of the largest subscription based theaters in this country. Isn't it, isn't it the largest? Well, I, I, I thought I read that somewhere. Yes. You have read that somewhere since COVID. I don't even know what the state of some of these other theaters are. So, right. you know, I'm just not using that superlative because I'm like, for all I know, <laughs> some theater in Chicago. But uh, yeah, I mean, at one point, you know, in the 2012, 13, there was 50,000 subscribers, which is wild. That is wild. That's yeah. amazing. I mean, that's a huge success. Um that's amazing. Um, yeah, I would love to, uh, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Um, I think I've learned so much and, uh, I could talk all day, but, uh, I don't know if you have to go or not, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'll talk as you long. I'll talk as long as you want me to. I ate lunch. I'm good. I could talk all about right, cool. all day. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you just, uh, you do so many things and I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about the literary side too. Um, cause oh, I, yeah. I think I remember one time, I think it was in the green room and you were talking about all the plays that you were reading. Um, what do you guys, what do you guys look for in a play? I know you said like commercial appeal, obviously, is there yeah. certain genres or subject matters you guys like? We would probably would shy away from anything that's like extremely divisive um yeah but like now that i'm saying that you know we've done plays like other desert cities and the humans which some people may not connect well with but it's it's story driven it's quality stories that you have an emotional connection to and a lot of times the plays that achieve commercial success that don't have a name in them. So what I mean by a name is like Tom Hanks in whatever, or Denzel Washington in Fences. The Humans was such a unique example of the play being the star. Same with Bad Jews. The play was the star. And I find that a lot of times when you observe that, that it's a compelling story. It's got to be a compelling story. So even if we read a play about Alzheimer's or something that may not be happy-go-lucky, um, when there's an emotional connection to the piece and it's a strong, story-driven, quality, well-written play, that connects. There's a lot of bad. We get a lot of not-good plays. You know, I'm sorry to confess or admit. Um, oh, I love that. So I do a lot of bad stuff. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what makes a not-good play that you've read? 
Oh man. Uh lack of focus. Really? What okay. is this play about? Who what are we trying to do here? <laughs> what are you trying to get? Yeah, so when there's no focus, um Focus is in like yeah. having a protagonist or not having a, a yeah, clear like structure the or basics of what is this play about? You know? <laughs> and the other thing that I guess I'll admit is um unreasonable production expectations for example like oh hey i wrote a play about like 55 aliens landing on earth and there's a spaceship that has to like fly out of the theater and i'm like all right i mean no. you, didn't, you didn't you didn't have to call out my play like that i mean yeah yeah like that's why you okay. got the rejection <laughs> I, I understand now I, i'm i'm getting what you're saying yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, so you need fifty-four. Think, you need fifty-four aliens, not fifty-five. You know, like fifty-two equity and then two non-equity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested. I remember thinking this after nine eleven. There was like a post nine eleven playwriting adaption where you saw a lot of people writing very pro-American themes, um, and the way that things were cast or the way that breakdowns were written about talked about. Uh, nationalities a little bit differently just like now uh post covid you see a lot of playwrights adapting how their plays can have doubling in the cast to reduce the cast size um a lot of maybe scenic elements in plays that are new or just being written uh are a lot more minimal or bare bones so i think we're gonna see the effects of the pandemic on new plays like 10 years from now i think i think yeah no that that makes sense. I mean, there's even the new Sunset Boulevard. I don't know if it's COVID related, but you know, like the, there's like a minimalist Sunset Boulevard coming, which is fascinating. All right, and maybe there is a there's an economic driving force behind the fact that the last two Broadway productions of Sunset Boulevard were not fully realized productions of Sunset Boulevard. You did not have this Norma Desmond lavish house. Even with Glenn right. Close, they spent their money on her and that gorgeous 20-piece orchestra, and it was structural. That was it. Minimal. I think it's um, – I mean, obviously, artistic is all about the tastes, but um, I always when – I, when I go see a show or when I'm – because I actually do write plays too, and it's all about um, – uh man i just lost my train of thought <laughs> what was i saying basically it's about the story i mean it's about it's um it doesn't have to, if you need a big set you well i have a friend who also says you can't go out whistling the set you know like it could be <laughs> it could be a beautiful set but you need the the basics of the show to be good you need to have if it's a musical you need to have catchy songs and you need to have you know songs that move the plot forward and you need to have a story that's that's worth telling and that's interesting. Yeah, it's a good point because when we get a musical sent here, Bernard will say, just listen to the music first. Don't even read the script or look at anything. Just pop mm. in the CD or click the link and just listen to the music. Was it good? No? Then don't even consent. Then, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I wish we'll I listen. wish some people on Broadway would, uh, listen, would do that <laughs> tactic, to be honest. Well, the nice um, part about so the regional theater versus like the commercial theater is we don't have to serve a, a group of investors here. You know what I mean? It's, How does it work not, though? Because is there there's a board of directors? Yeah, kind of thing? but I mean, well, the difference economically between like a 501c3 nonprofit theater versus a commercial enterprise is with the commercial theaters on Broadway, um, a group of wealthy investors put their money into a pot with the hopes that they'll make a return on their investment. So it's no different than blackjack. You know what I mean? They're betting their money on the success of a show for the purpose of earning income and making a return on their investment. Right. On the regional theater or a nonprofit, a 501c3, any profit that is made is not going into the pockets of the employees. That revenue is put back into the organization. And so we don't really have to worry about satisfying shareholders or satisfying investors. We can stick by our mission statement and do what we believe is best for the community. That's cool. Um, that kind of goes into what you're saying about the educational arm that you guys have about, um, I guess, uh, 
what kind of edu- I mean, what kind of educational stuff do you guys do at the one? Like, is is the purpose to like um, help them open up as people? Is it? I mean, do they put on productions? I'm just kind of curious about that. Oh my gosh, it's pretty vast. So, like, just to rattle off the programs, you know, the apprenticeship program is one of them. Every right. every season, there's like 30 apprentices here. Scene shop, management, marketing, whatever you want. Uh, Bernard built an entire theater school back in like 86, maybe 1986. So there's an entire theater school here where you can come and take night classes. You can take Saturday classes. There's audition classes. There's dance classes. There's acting for film and TV. That's its whole school, um, which is awesome because then we can like grow the artists of tomorrow. And Elvis is a great example where post COVID understudies is a whole other business in itself that we're like basically we're, we have like a actor farm here where we are growing and training actors from our summer camps you know we'll do camp walnut through their teens where they're in our theater school and then they go into the apprenticeship program and then they're on our stage so it's um so we have the apprenticeship the theater school the touring outreach shows that go into the schools we have an adopt a school program where we're building a theater program at a school we have residencies where if a school wants us to do an after school program for acting and dancing we'll do that um it's it's wide it's a wide spanning program that's awesome and that's uh yeah. honestly i wish i would have had something like that growing up like it's it's really a, a value add to the community for sure um, yeah. especially with, with such a theater that does such, you know, has such a high pedigree of, of work behind it, um, and in front of it to do, um, what advice would you give? I mean, to like aspiring theater artists, um, who want to pursue a career or that maybe they're acting and they might, they might feel like you, um, as far as want interested in other areas of the business as well. Yeah, I would explore and take advantage of opportunities that exist at some of these regional theaters. I think there is a uh, unpopular opinion. There is this conception that New York and Broadway is what defines a successful artist. I don't believe that. I don't subscribe to that philosophy. You can earn a living as an artist or a performing artist and never step foot on Broadway. There are actors who have lived in Chicago and Philadelphia their whole lives and have been working actors, been scenic charges, who have been working in marketing departments. So this seduction, this intoxication that if it's not New York, it's nothing, uh, I think is a very misleading and damaging uh, philosophy to impose on young people, especially in academia. Um, there's nothing wrong with graduating from Florida State or whatever and interning or exploring different avenues at the Azalo or at Riverside or Maltz Jupiter in Florida, like use the resources that you have smartly so that maybe when you do go to New York, you're competitive. I can't say with confidence that if I had just up and moved to New York, that like Jay Bender was going to hire me to be the casting director in his office, RIP to Jay Bender or Tara Rubin or Bernie Telsey um, you know, but I grew those skills, just not in New York. Um, and I used connections and I networked with people in New York and, you know, Duncan Stewart was incredibly helpful to me getting me in the CSA. So was Michael Casera. Shout out to those guys. And without their support, I don't know if the New York LA contingency would have adopted me into the CSA but those two men spoke on my body of work and my reputation enough to get me inducted. So uh, I didn't have to work in New York, you know, you know, at Pat McCorkle's office for decades and decades answering the phones um, because it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I guess I chose the route of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond to like beef up my skills um, instead of just being like, I'm going to New York because if it's not New York, it's nothing. I think that's so that's such a healthy way to look at it too because there's only one New York and it's a small island but there's a vast world out there that has so many skills that you can develop and um that's amazing that you found I mean Philly, Philly too is still a, a pretty big pretty big pond I would say I mean it's not obviously the same as New York but um 
I think it's uh, that's really good advice as far as just taking advantage of what's around you and not feeling like not feeling the the yeah that it's Broadway or nothing. I love that because so much there's so many thriving theater artists that have lifelong careers and do make amazing work and they do it all across the world all across the country and not necessarily in one place where you know we're told that this is the end all be all um you know and and it's not and honestly i mean some of the most creative work is not done in new york you know people don't i think people don't understand that sometimes too is that a lot of regional theaters develop the most creative exciting work it's it's not a, <laughs> yeah exactly it's like because there's so many other it, i almost liken it to you know, going in and you're basically it's uh there's so much other considerations in new york right there's like the com mostly commercial considerations and so if it doesn't work commercially it might not survive or thrive but just because it doesn't work commercially doesn't mean that it's not a, a worthwhile piece of work i mean look at how many shows have failed on broadway that were commercial successes across the country. So like Little Mermaid, I don't think was really considered a commercial success for Disney theatricals on Broadway. And then it's probably the most successful regional theater musical in history in terms of like what it can generate in terms of revenue, you know, both the tours right. and the regional theaters and the high schools. And, uh, you know, I know Glenn Casal had a big influence on how to reimagine that show uh, post New York but uh, you're right. I mean, Little Mermaid's a perfect example of that. I get really, really um, proud about the American landscape of theater when I think about shows like Dear Evan Hansen, because that was not something that just opened on Broadway right away, because it's like Broadway or bust, like what Something Rotten did, you know. Uh, and it wasn't a transfer from the Chocolate Factory in London, like Color Purple, for example, or whatever. Um, and it didn't have... Tom Hanks or Denzel Washington in it. It was a musical that workshopped and ran at Arena Theater in D.C. and transferred, and it had a true developmental phase of how a musical in America can be created. And so whether or not you like the show or you don't like the music or you didn't like him, it's a success story of the musical, which is an American-created thing, to see a show like that developed and built in our own country instead of saying like, oh, we saw that Back to the Future did really well in London, so now we'll move it here. We saw that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory well did well and Matilda, move it here. Why aren't we doing more Dear Evan Hansen's where we're like growing our own stuff? It's, um, I see those as successes. Yeah, from the absolutely. Um, amazing. Well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah. Um, your your experience and your perspective on on things are uh, so invaluable to hear, and uh, it was really fun catching up. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course.